In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Please be seated. Let me start with a confession and an apology. The confession is that much like sermons about hell, I'm sometimes put off by sermons about money. The apology is that I've written one of both. <laughs> One of the risks of such sermons has to do with the nature of the appeal, with how the preacher attempts to motivate the congregation. Sermons about hell often play on our fears, and sermons about money often play on our guilt. And while both fear and guilt are important, even necessary motivators in the Christian life, there are more excellent ways. And when churches spend too much time and energy stoking fear of the fires of hell, or guilt about the use of money, they risk giving more power to hell and money than they deserve. Having identified this risk and taking some comfort in the fact that All Souls doesn't really overemphasize such matters, let's turn to our gospel reading for the day. It's a parable about money, and it's a particularly puzzling parable at that. A dishonest manager is commended by his master. The actions of the sons of the world are praised over the actions of the sons of light, and we're commanded to make friends through the use of unrighteous wealth, dishonesty, worldliness, unrighteousness. Wait, what? On its face, this doesn't exactly sound like the good news, does it? Explanations abound. One interpretation I came across this week claimed that the master was probably charging interest, which was forbidden according to Jewish law. So the manager was simply canceling the interest, canceling the act of the wrongdoing. He was dishonest toward the master. Another interpretation claimed that Jesus was using sarcasm. Yeah, just go ahead and try to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. Sure, that'll work. And then there's N.T. Wright's reading of the passage after reminding us that we shouldn't try to glean specific financial advice from this parable, don't go adjusting your 401k risk levels just yet. <laughs> Wright explains that the point of the parable and Luke's other teachings about money boils down to faithfulness. He writes, money is not a possession, it's a trust. God entrusts property to people and expects it to be used for his glory and the welfare of his children not for private glory or glamour. Canceling the wrongdoing, sarcasm, faithfulness, there may be something to say for each of these readings, but this week I found myself drawn to the reflections on the parable by the French philosopher Jacques Ellul from his book, Money and Power. Ellul suggests that we must read the parable of the steward in light of the much clearer declaration that follows it. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Much clearer. <laughs> There's good reason to read the parable in light of these words, both when Jesus talks about making friends through the means of unrighteous wealth, and here, when he declares that you can't serve both God and money, he uses the word mamona, mammon. For Elul, then, the parable is helping set up what he calls the conflict between two masters, God and, God and mammon, which is illustrated really beautifully by our bulletin cover. 
today. Now, Alul is careful to note that the opposition between God and mammon is no Manichaean dualism. Mammon is not anti-God, not the anti-God, not an anti-God, but, Alul says, a defeated power. Alul's point is, rather, that when we come under the thrall of mammon, we treat money as a kind of God. We treat that which is secular as sacred. We worship something profane. And mammon is a deceitful master. Mammon promises that if we pledge our allegiance to him, we'll have greater freedom and security. But in reality, as we grip money tighter, we find that it has a grip on us. Mammon's freedom is a fantasy. John Milton teaches something similar in Paradise Lost. As you might recall, Milton, himself drawing on earlier tradition, names one of the fallen angels, Mammon. Thrown from the bliss of heaven into the torments of hell, the fallen angels engage in a debate about how they should respond to their situation. Should they make war on heaven, on the Almighty? Should they reign in hell or something else? And Mammon's proposal is telling. Let us, he declares, seek our own good from ourselves, and from our own live to ourselves, though in this vast recess free and to none accountable, preferring hard liberty before the easy yoke of servile pomp. Free, to none accountable, making good of oneself for oneself, these are the promises of worldly wealth. You can be your own master, money says, but it's a lie. After all, Mammon makes this argument about freedom from the confines of hell. <laughs> Hard liberty, some freedom. When I was in middle school, one of the cartoons I used to watch pretty religiously was DuckTales, <laughs> which followed the adventures of Huey, Dewey, and Louie and their rich uncle, Scrooge McDuck, who, like his liter literary forefather, Ebenezer Scrooge, was a hoarder of money. <clears throat> In 2013, Forbes published the fictional 15, the 15 richest fictional characters, and Scrooge took the top spot <laughs> above the likes of Bruce Wayne, C. Montgomery Burns, and Mr. Monopoly. <laughs> Forbes estimated that Scrooge's net worth would be approximately $65.4 billion, which isn't bad. But DuckTales, the show, had his wealth at 607 trillion, 386 zillion, 947 trillion, 522 billion dollars, and 36 cents. <laughs> DuckTales values were, of course, Mammon's values. The show was almost entirely about amassing and protecting one's wealth, and the good characters were always after more treasure, while the bad characters, the villains, were always trying to empty Scrooge's enormous money bin, a temple to Mammon with a huge dollar sign emblazoned right on the front. And to the best of my knowledge, DuckTales never threw off Mammon's yoke, unlike the Scrooge of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Even if you ha haven't seen DuckTales or read the comic that preceded it, I'm betting that Scrooge McDuck conjures an image in your mind. His money bin was filled with gold coins, and Scrooge's fa favorite pastime was to go swimming in it. His vault entrance had a diving board, and he would jump in, swim under the surface, poke his head up, and then spit a stream of coins through the air. The image is a memorable one. It sticks, I think, because it speaks to a deep desire. 
to seek our own good of ourselves, for ourselves, and then to be enveloped, to be swaddled by the fruits of our own labor. It's the desire for worldly security, and it's a powerful desire. And once again, such security is illusory. Scrooge may be the richest fictional character ever, but he's also one of the most anxious, ever worried that his vast riches will be stolen. And even his moments of glee, swimming alone in a bin of cold, inert metal, are actually kind of sad, foreshadowing a never-to-be-written episode of DuckTales, written, written, I'm imagining, by Dante. <laughs> Just imagine if Dante had watched DuckTales. If Forbes can have its fictional 15, so can Dante. In Dante's Inferno, as you may recall, the soul's punishments are often contrasts of the sins that they committed in their lives. They are contrapasso, which literally means to suffer the opposite. What would Dante have done with McDuck? I think there's only one possibility. He almost certainly would have been drowning eternally in his gold not gliding effortlessly through the coins, but submerged and feeling the full weight of 607 trillion, 386 zillion, 947 trillion, 522 billion dollars, and 36 cents. The money bin is his tomb. The money bin is the miser's tomb. Now, Scrooge is an easy target, but many of us have our own little hordes, which grip us just as powerfully as that wealth. In the actual inferno, Dante divides those who died following mammon into two groups, the greedy, those who hoard, and the prodigals, those who spend wastefully. The greedy all move in a circle one way, and the prodigals move along the same circle in the opposite direction, and both groups are forced to push heavy boulders with their chests. And as they pass each other on these endless back-breaking rounds, they run into each other, they shout at each other. The greedy shout, why do you squander at the prodigals? And the prodigals shout, why do you hoard at the greedy? Contrapasso. Here the hoarders are forever forced to collide with their, and be taunted by their opposites and vice versa. As Dante expert Teodolinda Baralini has noted, the inferno often follows an Aristotelian notion of virtue, which sees virtue as a means between two opposing vices, a golden mean. The suggestion here is that the proper use of money involves moderation between avarice on the one hand and wastefulness on the other. Baralini writes that Dante's hoarders and squanders, quote, move in opposite directions, but always toward each other, toward the mean that they were unable to reach in life. They suffer the opposite. Scripture itself contains its own examples of contrapasso for mammon's worshipers. Consider today's reading from the book of Amos. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? that we may deal deceitfully with false balances. Here is a people who amasses wealth by trampling on the needy and using faulty scales, and who care more about buying and selling and cheating than about observing the Sabbath. To them, the Lord says, 
Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they'll wonder everywhere, seeking from north to south. They'll run to and fro, but they shall not find the word of the Lord. You want to amass worldly wealth through acts of injustice? Then you suffer the opposite, famine. And not just physical famine. It's worse than that. The punishment for the unjust pursuit of worldly wealth is a spiritual famine, a frantic desire for and inability to hear the word of the Lord, contrapasso. Or consider the rich man and Lazarus, which appears just a couple of verses beyond our reading for today. It's the same chapter. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. There were dogs that licked his sores, and when they both died... In Hades, the rich man in torment looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side, and he called, Father, Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip just the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in the fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. Failing to comfort... The needy in life results in discomfort and death in this story. And if you need one more example of contrapasso, uh, just consider the words of today's offertory. I'll invite you to just read it on your own. Um, it's a more positive spin. So how then do we resist mammon's allure? We can't not use money. Allure writes, the Christian must use money. In the economic world as well, however unjust it may be, however alienated it may, may be, and from the viewpoint of intense faith, however unimportant it may be. But Alul goes on to suggest that it is possible to use money without succumbing to mammon's allure. The key, and this seems to be at least one of the points of today's enigmatic parable, is to use it in ways that take away its sacred character. Instead, we must do things that treat money as it should be treated, not as sacred, but as profane. And how do we make money profane? How do we do something, and how do we, how do we make money profane without resorting to dishonesty? The answer to that is that we do something that money was never intended for, according to Alul. Money is used to buy and spend, to get and to spend, to buy and sell. But, but Alul says... There is, quote, something we can do which profanes money by going against the law of money, an act for which money is not made. This is the act of giving. In other words, we can suffer the opposite, contrapasso. Instead of hoarding our money, we can give some of it away. When we use money not only to buy and sell, but also to act generously, we act impiously toward money, irreverently toward money. And we may find that when we give in this way, we're not really suffering the opposite at all. Perhaps such gift giving will develop into a love, even an enjoyment of the opposing action. The act of giving has powerful effects beyond money's profanation. According to Alul, and I love this, 
It also, quote, introduces the one who receives the gift into the world of grace. It begins a new chain of cause and effect which breaks the vicious cycle of selling and corruption. And then there's gifts to God. Alul says that when we give in this manner, quote, an object which belonged to a hostile power is torn from him in order to be turned over to God. In that sense, our simple act of passing the offering plate each Sunday is a countercultural pledge of allegiance. Standing for God, not for mammon, we declare, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For everything on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. We say you and yours over and over in this prayer, reminding us that all gifts ultimately come from God. And in the act of giving, God allows us to join in the economics of his kingdom, an economics marked by grace and generosity. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Finally, in the act of giving, we follow in some small measure the pattern of our Lord, who sought not after wealth or glory, but instead chose to suffer the opposite of what he deserved. Not of sin, but of what he deserved. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Amen.